Hi, everybody. Welcome to the March 8th, 2019 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper officially announcing his candidacy for, pre- for president in the 2020 election this week, officially joining 13 others seeking the Democratic nomination. Patty Calhoun from Westward. I saw on the very first tour uh, in Iowa after officially becoming uh, a, nom- or, or a candidate uh, that John Hickenlooper's visiting an awful lot of brew pubs in Iowa. Is he going to be uh, riding the whole beer thing to the White House? Wouldn't you be? At the very least, when you're up against 13 other candidates and counting, you probably need a beer or two. Although, interestingly, when he came back into town Wednesday after he'd been in New York for his, announce- his original announcement, he talked to the press, but he did not have a beer. And that might have been the first time ever when he was in the group hub he founded that he didn't. Uh, he had the, his, he's had a couple good lines, like you were just mentioning, the, that now with four syllables, 12 letters, he's got the long, he's the biggest name mm-hmm. who's gotten into the race. That was good. At his rally last night in Denver, he got off a good one about instead of saying you're fired, which Trump does, the best words you can say are you're hired. So he is absolutely going to push his business background. He's going to have to be able to figure out how to deal with things like when Joe Scarborough this morning asked him if he was a capitalist. And that's not a very good word in the Democratic Party right now, but certainly Hickenlooper's small business background is really something he can market, I think. Interesting to watch. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. It's great to have you back after a couple of weeks out. Uh, David, what do you think of the way John Hickenlooper is presenting himself among his fellow Democratic candidates? Can he get traction, in, I guess, in an era like this where both parties are really going to the wings? No, he's not going to win the communist wing of the Democratic Party. You know, he's, he's, he's not an anti-Semite. Uh, he doesn't hate uh, oil and gas workers. Uh, he is a capitalist. You know, he, he believes in a strong social welfare state and did a lot as governor to expand it. But he doesn't think that business is illegitimate or that if, uh, as uh, the Ocasio-Cortez campaign manager said, every billionaire is a policy failure. You know, he's not against, he doesn't have a philosophy based on greed and envy, which is what socialism is. So does that make it harder in some cases in, you know, narrow caucuses where the the far left might dominate? Yes, but it also means he's got a better chance of winning a general election uh, than most of the other Democrats in the field. Uh, It is to his advantage uh, that he's running as a Democrat and not a Republican. The last time a Republican really came from like nowhere, you know, very little public name recognition, uh, you know, not even registering in the polls the year before the election was Wendell Wilkie in 1940. Uh, Ever since then, the Republicans have always nominated, you know, one of their two leading choices uh, as of the year, you know, somebody was famous, well-known, and probably run nationally before. But the Democrats, you've got Dukakis, Michael Dukakis, governor of Massachusetts in 88, Jimmy Carter, governor of Georgia in 76, and George McGovern in 72, uh, coming from very far out uh, to, to win the nomination. So I, I'd say he's, uh, I, I wouldn't count him out at all. And besides that, in Iowa, uh, he is a relative of longtime conservative Republican Iowa senator in the uh, 50s and 60s, Bork Hickenlooper. So he may know more about Iowa politics than uh, the handicappers recognize. As good of a job that uh, Krista Kafer and Craig Silverman tried to do sitting in your stead while you were out, none of them were going to come up with a Wendell, Wendell Wilkie or a Bork Hickenlooper uh, reference. Well done, David, uh, as always. Uh, Eric Sumner rounds up the panel for us today. Eric, uh, what do you think? I mean, he raised a million dollars in 48 hours. That's nothing to sneeze at. But can that be competitive in the field that he's entering? 
The million dollars was sort of a minimum barrier to entry. The governor of Washington, who got in the race the week prior, Jay Inslee, raised comparable money. Yeah, it was a minimum barrier, and he met that barrier. It is not often uh, that I get to take on David on history, but I, I, I need to this time. He's right about Wendell Wilkie. He's right about other pieces. Thank you for Bork, Hick, and Looper. I did not know that piece. But uh, when you talk about Republicans always nominate the next in line. No, not the next in line, but a guy who was a leader in the year before. Okay. I guess I would suggest that there's one other notable and very recent exception to that named Donald Trump. But but he was the head of the polls starting in 2015. But he he did not meet the the usual profile. Give me a chance, David. (laughs) It's not often I can get... uh, Eric, you went tugging on Superman's cape over here. and you took him on history. history, So I'm going to take my opportunity, take my shot. I think it's going to be fascinating to watch where the Hickenlooper campaign goes, simply because he is somebody we've been talking about around this table now for... 15, 16 years, but, but I flash on when a, a, a mutual friend of ours introduced uh, me to him early in his mayoral campaign. We had lunch at the Appaloosa Grill. I'm not even sure if that's still around uh, downtown. That was my first um, face-to-face with John Hickenlooper, and it's going to be interesting to see where hometown boy goes. He does have a lane to run in. It is a narrow lane. The lane gets narrower if Joe Biden gets in. Uh, it's sort of the mature lane the one where it is not this harsh ideological contrast with Donald Trump. It is much more of a stylistic of we can be civil to each other. It's, the, it's a human contrast versus an ideological contrast. I think it's a narrow lane. This will be a test of whether uh, a nice guy can prosper in today's Democratic Party, a moderate guy can prosper in today's Democratic Party, for that matter, whether any guy can prosper or whether um, uh, we're looking for the other gender. It's going to be fun to watch. Well, indeed. And a quick program note, we're usually used to our uh, four top of panelists. Natasha Gardner was scheduled to, to uh, join us today, but this morning she wisely took the advice of her six-year-old who said you should not go to work today because she could barely mutter a whisper with her voice the way it was. So we hope she is feeling better and uh, sage advice from all of her. A bill that would bring sweeping oil and gas regulation reforms to Colorado was formally introduced this week. Nearly 400 people testified in front of the Senate Transportation and Energy Committee, creating a marathon 12-hour meeting that ended with a predictable bill passing on a 4-3 party line vote. Meanwhile, former U.S. Senator Ken Salazar expressed his concerns that amending the state's oil and gas regulations could virtually ban drilling in some locations. Patty, the, the amount of people was impressive, but I guess I wasn't terribly surprised a lot of folks would want to testify for and against this bill. But Ken Salazar coming out against it uh, as vociferously as he did, and I realize he's done some work for the oil and gas firm, but it made me think this could have been a whole different story thinking of way back when who we thought was going to run for governor, and he was the top person on the list who then said, I'm not running, then everybody else came in. It was... A little surreal to watch. What was it like for you? Well, I'm just glad I wasn't there in person for the 12-hour wait. might have been more entertaining if it had been the sex education bill because they lasted about as long that time. Uh, We were filming last week just when they were really finalizing this and introducing it, and you knew it was going to be draconian compared to what the current laws are, but you didn't know how far. You can see right now the oil and gas industry 
wished, probably wishes they had spent some of the money and effort they spent on pushing 74, trying to defeat 112, on maybe trying to keep the Senate Republican because it is going to be very hard for them to stop this bill at this at this moment as it's going. Ken Salazar's position isn't all that surprising because he's been doing work for Anna Darko. And let's remember some of the testimony that came out was from the woman who lost a brother and a husband after an old Anna Darko well led to a gas expl- uncapped led to a gas explosion. So um, killing those two. I mean, really moving testimony. Interesting that there was testimony on both sides. You also see how the anti-fracking and really the most to the left anti-fracking forces that we've seen in Colorado are feeling their oats because they were definitely out protesting at the Hickenlooper announcement yesterday. And they're going to keep fighting on this. So it's going to be a hard-fought battle in the legislature. But I'm just not sure how oil and gas is going to be able to rest any concessions on this. The Oil and Gas Commission will probably wind up with a very changed mission, which gives local control and also puts health and environment before any other considerations. David, the way it's written now, let's assume it just keeps going through on a party line vote, is oil and gas probably looking more at legal fights one community at a time that come after them? What do you think is their their play after what we've seen so far? Except their extermination. <laughs> um, there, there's, the point of this bill is there's no more room for legal fights. You, you just wipe them out and, and that's the end of it. Um, I don't want to praise, I didn't agree with the committee's vote, but as Patty said, they they listened to everybody who testified. You know, you're, usually you're on a three-minute limit, and the legislature does that all the time on all kinds of controversial bills. It's one of the things that makes Colorado special, where just as a citizen, you can come down and say your piece. You're not necessarily going to change people's minds, but at, at least you, you, you really do get to speak, um, and that, that is uh, one of the ways Colorado has, has always been uh, a, a well-governed state in that regard. Uh, this will destroy Weld County. It will wipe out their tax revenues, and it wouldn't surprise me if they start another secession movement uh, over this because it's it's no longer an economically viable county uh, with what's going to be done with it, and they for their own survival uh, would be better off uh, joining Northeast Colorado and uh, in Nebraska or or Wyoming. Uh, Ken Salazar is not only a former senator, but he's also former Secretary of the Interior under President Barack Obama, who I suppose if you listen to Ocasio, uh, Representative uh, Omar and folks like that, he's just a murderous uh, right-wing thug. Uh, But most of the Democratic Party thinks he's a great guy. They renamed their annual dinner in this state after him. And so Salazar has a very strong, long record as an environmentalist and also as a regulator of oil and gas. And I thought the Obama oil and gas regulations on federal lands went way, way too far. But former Secretary Salazar says this goes way over the line. I think if you're not an expert on the details of the regulations, uh, the fact that he's against it kind of says it all. Eric, uh, on the political side of things, it it looked to me, when you saw people like Ken Salazar and John Hickenlooper, I, not necessarily the old guard of the Democratic Party in Colorado, but, but at least the, the part of the guard that uh, took care of the, the mainstream, more the moderate side of it, and a new leadership that you see right now in the legislature and the governor's office, basically saying, we're dark blue, we don't care, uh, thanks, thanks for your service, we're going to run it our way. But maybe I'm being short-sighted, what do you think? Yeah, now a few quick points. I'm going to try to stay to the big picture. One is ex- exactly what you said. Democrats 
going back to 2004 when they had that big victory and took mm -hmm. over, there was always a tentative quality to their governance because they never were that self-confident that their majority was permanent. They always thought it was at risk in the next election a year or two years down the road. Now I perceive that the Democrats don't regard their majority status is in jeopardy. They think this has turned into a seriously blue state uh, and that they can do, not that they have to pick and choose from their agenda, they can do the whole agenda. Uh, secondly, back to our discussion before this session started, we were asking ourselves, is anyone going to ride the brake pedal in the Democratic Party? And at least from what I'm seeing so far, no one is on the brake pedal. The governor's not on it. Legislative leadership's not on it. We'll see if a Leroy Garcia or somebody like that in the Senate ever pumps the brakes. Uh, but so far, not. It's not just this bill, but, you know, you put it on top of the sex ed bill, the family and medical leave bill, which is a pretty all-encompassing bill that I think was introduced yesterday or the day before. They're going whole hog on this agenda. Thirdly, it, it shows that it's not just the party that matters, but it's also the person. Think of the immense difference, as your question indicated, Dominic, between a Governor John Hickenlooper and a Governor Jared Polis when you're considering this particular piece of legislation. Mm -hmm. Democrats are not having this discussion. That bill is not getting the traction. It did if this was two or three months ago when Hickenlooper was still in the corner office in the Capitol. Times have changed. Uh, the Democratic Party in this state, just as in the nation, has changed. It's moving left, and it's moving left in a hard way and in a rapid way. You talk about the who's on the brake pedal. Made me think of every uh, Bugs Bunny cartoon when it's some, some sort of plane or train's going, and they pull the emergency brake, and he's holding it in his hand. <laughs> right now, that's that's a, the, the closest thing to a brake right now that we're seeing at the Capitol. A number of Colorado counties have declared themselves Second Amendment sanctuaries as a preemptive move against the red flag bill. Currently under consideration, the county sheriff offices and county commissioners of Weld, Fremont, Montezuma, Custer, and Otero counties said that they will not enforce what they see as a potentially unconstitutional law. David, you are our esteemed lawyer at the table. Uh, I am not here to question what a sheriff decides is unconstitutional or not, but it's also a bill that has yet to be officially written into law. Where, how firm is their legal stance that this is unconstitutional so we don't have to enforce it? Well, I think, I think the more direct point is that it's extremely dangerous to the public and to law enforcement the way it, it's currently written. You know, Last year, I was working on a committee convened by the Uniform Commissioners of State Laws that was created at the request of the Conference of Chief Justices to write a national model red flag bill. Uh, sadly, that we were making some good progress, but that got shut down by the anti-gun lobby because they didn't want what would be a fair, balanced, listen-to-all-sides uh, kind of bill. They wanted only their quite extreme model. The problem in Colorado is Representative Garnett's bill started, in most respects, with that extreme model. He's, I've talked to him. He's been a good listener, and he's made some important constructive changes in the bill. But still, as it passed the House, it sets things up for danger. You can have lots of people, not just law enforcement, come in and get this order against somebody who doesn't even have notice, an opportunity to be heard, and we know that the error rate from other states in these kinds of things is 30 percent. So you're going to have a lot of innocent people victimized by this. And then under the bill as it currently is, the next step is the sheriff's deputy shows up at your house at 6 o'clock in the morning, 
could be a might knock could be a no knock raid without the normal controls we have on no knock raids that you have to get district attorney approval and says i'm i'm from the government i'm here to confiscate all your guns sheriffs lots of them don't want that because that sets up an unnecessary situation of conflict and and danger and and it's unfair to someone to have the conf, you know trump confiscate first due process later there are some situations where the police because of an real danger by somebody would have to go in and and do a no knock and seize the guns but that's not the vast majority of situations that this applies to this is more like people who were like depressed they might be suicidal in 3 weeks or 3 months and you don't want them to have guns that's fine but that's different from uh showing up to do immediate gun confiscations other states say that you only do the no knocks and things when you show a special need otherwise you just give somebody the notice and save got 24 hours uh to get rid of your guns in the following ways. Eric, what's the optics on this one? With the sheriffs coming out and David makes some valid points. I have not and will never be a county sheriff. I don't want to say that uh it's uh, this would be easy or dangerous to do this, but for sheriffs to come out and say nope, we consider this law unconstitutional, so we're just not going to enforce it now. We're a second amendment sanctuary. That's quite a stance to take. I thought that was your future, Dominic. I thought this was just a a staging ground for your big sheriff run and, and as soon as you can elect one in Denver. Denver's first elected sheriff. <laughs> you don't live in Denver. You can run. Uh-huh. <laughs> Good point. Uh more more seriously, I think the optics of this, Dominic, just reinforce what has become a running theme in this state dating back to some of the Hickenlooper years and now underscored in the Polis years with uh current legislative leadership etc which is that rural colorado feels very much ostracized that they are not represented at the colorado state capitol and i think you did the list of counties that is a growing list of counties mm-hmm. that are that are taking this uh this tack um and it and it just underscores uh that divide in our state i want to talk less i uh, probably friendlier to the red flag concept than david might be but i want to talk less about the gun issue and more about the concept of sanctuary counties you know i it strikes me that democrats or the left these days love sanctuary cities but not so happy with sanctuary counties and obviously the right is going to go uh the other way i think we're playing with fire here as much as i disagree with the Trump administration's approach to immigration issues, to DACA issues, etc. At some point the law of the land needs to be the law of the land. And this concept of nullification, which is really what sanctuary cities or sanctuary counties are, it's nullification. It's we're saying we are not going to enforce this particular law within our local jurisdiction. That was largely at the root of our civil war. um the idea of nullifying the laws of the state or the laws of the country is dangerous territory to go in and it's dangerous whether the left plays that game or whether the right plays that game Patty David alluded to it are we looking at a second secession movement from counties in the rural part of Colorado Well unless this this threat actually makes make some amendments inspire some amendments that people can live with i think we're seeing a repeat of 2013 in a lot of ways it is not just with the red flag law we were talking about it with the oil and gas will that inspire some of the northeastern counties that have really come to rely on that to think about seceding we also see it in the popular vote issue where we're now seeing recall efforts because people are so mad they want to get the popular vote onto the popular ballot and that's in limbo so we're seeing 
potential secession, recall, and sanctuary uh, counties, things are not as rosy in Colorado as it might appear at first glance. Democratic State Senator Angela Williams introduced the bill this week that would abolish the death penalty in Colorado. If the bill is passed, it will not directly affect the sentences of the three men currently on death row. However, Governor Polis has said that he would sign the bill and would consider commuting the death sentences currently being served. Uh, Eric, we just went through the differences of what a Governor Hickelooper and Governor Polis would be. This is in bold uh, type right here. Hickelooper told these folks, hey, I was going to veto it, so it never came back up. Now it at least has a, a clear shot to the governor's desk if it can get there. Do you think it will? Yes, I think it will get there. Uh, maybe you thank Jared Polis for giving Colorado the discussion of the death penalty that John Hickenlooper promised us way back in the uh, Nathan Dunlap era. Uh, quite frankly, I think we are at a point when we ought to have that discussion and we ought to resolve this issue of the death penalty one way or the other and not the Hickenlooper way, which was just to put it on ice, put it on a holding pattern, and kick it down to the road to the future governor. In this case, Jared Polis, but it could have been Walker Stapleton, could have been one of uh, Polis's primary opponents or whomever. Uh, I do believe that this bill is likely to go through the legislature. I think you can add it to the list of conservative grievances that Patty mentioned in, in the last round, uh, along with guns and oil and gas and popular vote and maybe medical and family leave and the list sex education uh, and the list goes on. Rhonda Fields, Democratic State Senator, occupies a rather unique position here as the mother of um, uh, a murder victim who's the perpetrator of uh, that crime being on death row now. Uh, and the Democrats need to treat Senator Fields a lot better, and Jared Polis needs to treat her a lot better and with a lot more respect and attention than has been the case so far. Pat, it's one thing to be in favor of abolishing the death penalty. It's another to commute these three sentences. Where do you think it's going to go? I think this is also going to go onto a ballot before we're done. It's been 40 years since we really had the last referendum on this. We need to definitely take Colorado's temperature on how people are feeling in general on the death penalty. Rhonda Fields actually spoke at Hickenlooper's rally last night, and so she's getting respect in some corners, but I think this is such a hot-button issue for people, and if it does sail through the legislature, which it looks like it might, people in Colorado are going to want to vote. So we are coming up on a very contentious ballot soon. David, wrap it up for us. Well, as you say, two of the three people on death row currently are the people who murdered Senator Field's son and, and his fiance, and the other guy is, is somebody who killed a bunch of people while robbing a Chuck E. Cheese. Uh, I think the death penalty is very just in all three cases. Uh, some people have a philosophical objection. As Patty said, we had a referendum on it in 74 where the voters were for the death penalty. Another one in 66 where the voters for the death penalty. This is the exact kind of sort of broad moral issue uh, that you should put uh, to the people. Time for a favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Cahoon, please start us off. A very disgraceful episode, not far from where we are, where racist graffiti was spray-painted all over a house in the coal neighborhood which shows the times haven't changed as much as you might think, and you can look to Boulder for another example of that, where a man, black man, picking up trash in his yard was stopped by the police, and extra help was called out for the dangers of an African-American man picking up trash with a little trash picker-upper. Good for the people who brought those to city council, and really a disgraceful episode brought it to the attention of 
Bolver. David. Someone else sprayed racist graffiti all over Twitter. Uh, the candidate who, the racist nut, who lost to Representative Diana DeGette in a landslide in the last Democratic primary, now says uh, she will unfollow anyone who says anything nice about Speaker Nancy Pelosi because Nancy Pelosi is a white supremacist. Twitter. <laughs> what, what can't it do? Uh, Eric. Bill Chager, um, staying with the theme of racism, how about the Democrats in Congress who completely lost their voice and their spine and any sense of courage yesterday in terms of the resolution that ostensibly started as a rebuke or a censor of Minnesota Congresswoman Ilhan Omar and then got watered down to complete and total nothingness. At least the Republicans, say what you want about them, and by God, they're a bunch of bad actors on that side of the aisle. But when Steve King, congressman from Iowa, stepped over the line, they, they held him to account, and they removed him from all committees. Democrats are um, living in fear of the representative Omars and Ocasio-Cortezes and others of this world. They'll rue that day. Time to say something nice about somebody. Patty? It's International Women's Day, so let's say something nice about that. And also, just what a kick in the pants it is for Colorado to have a presidential candidate again. It's going to be really fun to see how the state is played off on the national sphere. David. Attorney General Weiser, who I think behind the scenes wisely convinced the Colorado Civil Rights Commission to give up its persecution of cake baker Jack Phillips. Uh, they lost, the commission lost in the Supreme Court because... One of their members was an explicit, outspoken, anti-religious bigot. And now it turns out that two of the new members after the Supreme Court decision, oh, said that the previous bigot, she was right on. We agree with that. <laughs> so I think Representative Weiser correct, wisely said, uh, this is not a winning case for our side. Just give it up, folks. Eric, you're here to both Patty uh, and David. Uh, we'll, we'll be critical of John Hickenlooper at times here. We'll cheer him on at times. But in terms of say something nice, he said the right thing about the national popular vote, that it was an unpopular thing to say within his own party. It's going to be a hard position for him to hold on to of, of, of suggesting that that is a mistake to go that direction. Uh, he'll be under pressure on this issue and other lefty issues as time goes on. But good for him for sticking to his guns on this one. You probably know we're in the middle of our spring pledge drive here at CPT12. If you enjoy the show and you're already a member, thank you so much for making it possible. If you're not a member yet, not only can you support this show, but we have a great new member benefit for you when you do call in. You can now enjoy 24-7 access to great PBS and CPT12 programs wherever and whenever you wish on CPT12 Passport. Go to cpt12.org for more information. That is all the time we have for this week's episode of Colorado Inside Out. Thank you so much for joining us. For everybody here at CPT12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you and good night.